The interchange is brought to you by Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. With Wonder, you can help finance renewable energy projects while earning up to 7.5% annually. Get that return and help support the expansion of solar. To get started, visit wondercapital.com GTM. That's Wonder with a U, wondercapital.com GTM. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. We're also supported by Shoals Technologies Group, a global leader in balance of system solutions for solar and storage. This American company has deployed products on more than 25 gigawatts of solar projects across North America, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Shoals is the gold standard for solar and storage. Learn more about how Shoals can make your project operate at the highest level. Go to Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM's Editor-in-Chief in Boston. I'm joined by Shale Khan, the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. This week, the future of energy according to Shell. A few weeks back, the world's sixth biggest oil and gas company published a scenario that caught a lot of attention. By 2050, renewables could overtake oil, gas, and coal as the primary energy source. By that date, it could be, quote, impossible to purchase a new internal combustion car anywhere in the world. And by 2070, there could be 10,000 carbon capture plants operating, up from 50 today. As expected, Shell's report is getting a lot of reaction. Uh, A bunch of energy experts are stunned that Shell is putting together such an ambitious scenario. And remember, this is a scenario, not a prediction. Predictably... A lot of enviros are cynical, pointing to the fact that oil and gas still plays a prominent role in this scenario, and that Shell's CEO is rejecting calls from activist shareholders to set up steeper carbon reduction goals. And everyone else is like, wait, is this a good thing? Is this more greenwashing? What am I supposed to believe? We're constantly asking ourselves that question, so we're going to do it aloud here. Shale, what was your gut reaction to the report after reading it? Does it feel different from other scenarios you've read? Yes, I, I think that it does. So just for context, so Shell, like some of the other major oil and gas companies, BP especially, produces a, a periodic long-term outlook. And they they have a couple of different scenarios they've always had. But this year, they introduced a new one called the sky scenario. The other two are called mountains and ocean. So you can get a sense of the context here. But the sky scenario is is pretty ambitious in general, um, and certainly very ambitious from a decarbonization perspective from an oil and gas company. So, you know, it, it builds back from what would happen if the world took uh, the need to, to reach the Paris targets, two degrees C of uh, global warming, seriously. And so it gets the world to net zero CO2 emissions by 2070, and then it goes net negative Um you know, electricity becomes a major part is all the things that we've been talking about, right? Like it's decarbonizing the electricity sector, transitioning to electricity, transitioning a bunch of other stuff, but you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And so despite uh, a pretty big 
serious transition out through 2050 or 2070, you still don't hit peak oil demand until 2025. Um, you don't hit peak gas demand until the mid 2030s. And so one of the points that that Shell was sort of making in this scenario is like, look, this is the this is the big decarbonization scenario, but still for what they call the near to medium term through say the 2030s, there's there's not only um, demand for fossil fuels, but there's actually still increasing demand for fossil fuels for a time. Despite that, I think it's a, I think it's both ambitious and really interesting. And the thing that Shell did here that differentiates this for me from what I've seen, at least from the other super majors, is that they first put out the sky scenario. They put out, this is what the world could look like. And it's one of three scenarios. But then they put out another report late last week where they were outlining exactly what their business strategy is to try to succeed in the shell in the sky scenario. And I haven't seen that in a lot of other places. It doesn't have all the detail that you would want, but it, it lays out a pretty clear vision for uh, how Shell is thinking about its business in a big energy transformation. So I appreciated that. Yeah, there are two things there. Um, one is the the context for the sky scenario and the other is Shell's uh, transitioned business going forward. And I want to talk about the, the the business evolution second. Let's actually put the sky scenario in context first. So you mentioned that mountains and oceans are the other two scenarios, and it's helpful to understand what those scenarios are to understand why I think sky is actually pretty important. So first in the mountain scenario, it, it assumes that you know, governments basically act on their own and there's not a coordinated global effort. So I guess that's, you know, that's the mountainous policy landscape, if you will. And there's a lot of reliance on CCS. Um, in terms of the, in the second scenario, oceans, we see a ton of technical innovation and you see a lot of private actors moving, but you actually don't see much new policy action. Um, and that's why Sky is so important, because under Sky, they assume that countries really step up and set, you know, major economies set uh, $100 a ton carbon price, that they start considering a mass ban on internal combustion vehicles. Um, you know, these are like really big sweeping policy changes that Shell actually seems to indicate that they support long term, at least. And and I, I think that's why Sky feels so different to me, because, you know, even though oil and gas plays a big part of the energy picture through the middle of the century, they're seeming to say, we believe it's possible that to set these ambitious policy targets and we're going to go along with it if it happens. Yeah, I think this is one place where where there probably could be some pushback on Shell because it is – so the sky scenario, like you said, the way that they frame it is that it is driven by globally coordinated policy action. And I think you'll find some folks who would argue that the sky scenario is actually what is likely to happen even in the absence of globally coordinated policy action, that like the technology transition is underway and the transformation is going to occur faster than Shell thinks that it would, even in the absence of, you know, a, a more ambitious Paris climate accord with with teeth in behind it. So you know, I guess from my perspective, how each scenario occurs is interesting, but the sky scenario is 
is the most intriguing because it is the most ambitious. And so whether it happens because of coordinated policy action or because the technology arrives quicker than we expect is sort of secondary to what does it actually look like and what would it take and what does it mean for the various players and resources in energy? Another thing that jumped out at me was just how important solar is in the scenario from 2050 through 2070. So by 2050, solar... Uh, comes close to rivaling oil and gas in terms of primary energy consumption. And then by the end of the century, like 2070 to 2100, it becomes a dominant source of energy. By a lot, actually, it dwarfs oil and gas use. Now, mind you, this is a a very uh, forward-thinking, aggressive scenario compared to the other two scenarios. But uh, the fact that Shell sees solar so dominant is really interesting. And in fact, it completely dwarfs wind, too. Um, Wind right now is a global leader in renewable energy production, and solar is looks like it's going to you know surpass wind generation here pretty soon and um, and not look back. And I think actually that is pretty universal across these long term scenarios, whether it be from the super majors or IEA or others. I think pretty much everybody at this point, when they're forecasting out over the long term, is predicting more solar than any other source, any other individual source of generation, including wind. So so solar becomes the dominant force on the grid and the grid becomes the dominant source of energy usage. So it is notable, but I don't think that's unique to Shell's outlook. So it is pretty clear that solar is going to dominate the global energy landscape, completely dominate it by 2050 onward. And the biggest oil companies in the world believe that's the case. But what happens if you're not a shell or a big developer? How do you get in on the action? Well, you can do it through Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital is the easiest way to invest in commercial scale solar projects across the U.S., a booming market. And Wonder Capital is our sponsor of the interchange. GTM Research actually published a ranking of the top 15 players in the commercial market and Wonder Capital ranked number eight. Individual investors like you have the opportunity to help Wonder finance these commercial solar projects by investing in their solar investment funds. To date, Wonder has financed more than 180 commercial-scale solar projects across the U.S., and they're expecting to to support 120 megawatts of commercial solar. So you can get in on the action, you can begin investing in solar, and you can earn up to 7.5% annually. Go to wondercapital.com slash GTM to find out more. That's Wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM. GTM, Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. So what if you're one of these developers riding the global solar wave? Who do you turn to? You turn to Shoals Technologies Group, a leading manufacturer of balance of system solutions for solar and now storage. Shoals has all kinds of low-cost, high-quality products, combiner boxes, junction boxes, inline fuses, monitoring systems, because they make their products with a drive toward elegance. Scholz has a new solution called the BLA solution, and it embodies this approach. It's an integrated wire harness that eliminates combiner boxes and significantly lowers installation costs. The pressure is on. you got to keep lowering your costs, and Scholz Technologies helps you do that. Scholz has been serving the solar industry since 1996, and after years of exponential growth, this American company maintains the same passion for quality. If you're looking to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions, contact Shoals. You can find out more at Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. 
I was um, also captured by CCS, carbon capture and storage. The prediction that we could see many thousands, if not uh, 10,000 or more CCS projects around the world by 2070, again, up from a handful, basically a couple, a few dozen today. Um, you know, what, what that tells me, though, is that Shell does see policy intervention as a major force behind this scenario. We had Stephen Bull from Statoil on the Energy Gang last week, and, and he talked about why CCS is so important for a major oil and gas producer like Statoil. And, and he says, he said, there's really no clear economic case for CCS. We just, we recognize that it's necessary. We have been toying with it because we're responding to a carbon price um, that's been in place for oil and gas rigs in Norway. And, um, Without major policy interventions, you're really not going to see a lot of CCS. So not only is CCS vital, but CCS will succeed with massive policy intervention. And so if you want many thousands of CCS projects, you necessarily need a carbon price in most industrialized economies around the world. I mean, that's definitely true, right? CCS is is purely an added cost for the purpose of carbon capture. So you absolutely need a carbon price in some form or another or some other sort of restrictions on, on carbon emissions in order to justify significant CCS. Now, the question is, one, will you get that? Will we end up having sufficient carbon pricing? You know, you can't just have a carbon price. You need a high enough carbon price. Um, and second, even assuming that we do, does that then mean CCS is going to become the predominant solution or is it is it still not going to be worth it when compared against alternatives where you don't burn as much fossil fuels at all, let alone fossil fuels with CCS, and instead, you know, you have this mix of other options. And, and there's, you know, obviously some debate about that over the long term. And the other point to make about, um, about the, the fossil fuel bit and I've, I've heard this point made a lot and Shell makes it in this, this scenario as well, is that, you know, we often talk about fossil fuels in the power sector and, um, and in, especially in the more ambitious scenarios like this, you, you get to, you decarbonize the power sector pretty quickly and the, you know, a lot of the transportation sector moves to electricity, but the reason that you still end up with so much fossil fuel usage in the long term in most of these scenarios, and it's definitely true of this one, is from two places. One is from heavy transport um, and aviation. And the second is, and, and second bigger one, in fact, is from chemicals. So you end up with increasing petrochemical demand, especially from, from rising economies in Asia. Um, and that still utilizes a lot of oil. Um, so that, that is the place where it, you know, it's not clear that we have a solution that, that is an alternative to petrochemicals. Um, and that's why, you know, when we talk about like, if you wanted to stop burning fossil fuels tomorrow, is the technology there to solve that problem? You know, arguably it is on the grid at some cost. Um, it's not clear that it is in the chemical sector at all. Uh, I, that's a vital piece of this analysis. I mean, we're going to need fossil fuels, at least as it stands today, with no clear alternatives. We're going to need a lot of fossil fuel use in agriculture and in chemicals production, which I think shows why we need to be putting our money behind CCS right now and why a lot of oil companies actually do see CCS as the future. 
Yeah, and Shell has a nifty little graphic in in the report where they outline eight core markets for the chemical industry. And it's useful because you don't necessarily think about all the different ways in which we use petrochemicals. So as an example, in the consumer industry, it's in clothing, it's in furniture, it's in toys, in the transportation industry, it's in upholstery and cars and car body parts, in wiring and cables and phone casings. So, you know, is all of that stuff, could, could that be shifted? Uh, maybe. Um, but, you know, you kind of have to go one by one through every one of these industries that uses that stuff if you actually want to try to reduce it. So their case here, which is the case that I think I've heard many other times before, is that if there's a growth industry um, for fossil fuels over the next century, it's going to be within chemicals. Let's turn now to the new energies business, which um, could amount to capital investments of a billion to $2 billion a year. What is Shell saying that they're going to invest in given the current state of that new energies business and what may happen um, again under this sky scenario, how that business will scale up? So first I'll note that I've noticed for some reason that all of the super majors, almost all the super majors, when they you know are building their their power or renewables or decarbonized business, they all call it new energies. Um, they've decided that that's the terminology that they're going to use. So you see that at like, there's like total new energy. And I think Statoil has a new energy thing and Shell's got new energies. Um, but Shell's is maybe, it's one of the more ambitious. And I guess back to the the point before about, you know, does Shell deserve credit for this? The, the way that I think about how the super majors are approaching this transition is sort of on a spectrum. Right. And one of the spectrum is full embrace with total transformation of the business underway. The other end of the spectrum is head in the sand denial. Um, and nobody's at either end fully of the spectrum. But I think Shell, again, along with Total and Statoil, maybe, and maybe I'm missing one other, they're certainly the ones who are embracing this the most, um, at least among their peers. And, you know, you could put like Exxon on the other end. I don't see Exxon making any big moves in this direction. So within Shell, They've got this new energies business. They, as you noted, they they estimate that they're going to spend about one to two billion dollars a year on that business through 2020. Now that's out of a total 25 to 30 billion dollars a year that they are investing across all of their businesses. So it's not a huge share. Um, so you know that's open to debate whether that's sufficient or not. That's one of the but biggest criticisms of oil companies, oil and gas majors anyway, even though they're pouring hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, depending on the business, it's usually just a small fraction of total capital expenditures. Yeah, that's right. And that remains true uh, here. But, you know, the, the $1 to $2 billion a year in the context of, of new energies is not insignificant. And what they're doing within that is a lot of different things, but I would pay particular attention to what they're doing in the power sector uh, because, you know, such a big part of this transition is electrification of vehicles and then um, transformation of the power sector itself. So they've already, Shell has made a bunch of moves already that pertains to power. They invest, they, they purchased MP2 energy, which is a competitive retailer, um, in Texas, in the U.S., they also bought a residential electricity retailer called First Utility in the U.K. They're involved in utility-scale renewables. They're sort of developing their own wind projects for a while. They made a big investment recently in Silicon Ranch Solar, which is a, a utility-scale solar developer. They've acquired a, an electric vehicle charging company called New Motion, based in the EU, um, and they've in, invested in you know 
taken minority stakes in companies like Inspire Energy, which is sort of a new version of a of a retailer um, focused on clean energy in the United States. So they're they're making they're sort of spreading their bets and making pretty broad plays in the power market. And and I think that's maybe the most interesting dynamic that's going to be playing out over the next decade or so in energy, which is that because there's increasing recognition that uh, electricity is going to become a larger share of overall energy, and because transportation is is shifting toward electricity, everybody is going after the electricity market. So you've got the incumbents in electricity, so the utilities and any upstarts there, but you've now got the oil and gas companies, which historically generally don't have a lot in the electricity business. And if they do, it's just generation. So now they're getting involved more downstream there. And you could add, you know, the sort of in the transportation world, auto OEMs who want to be building their own mobility services, the Ubers and, you know, companies like that, Waymo, like as you add self-driving and all those kinds of things, it's just like a clash of a bunch of really big incumbent companies all kind of bouncing around the same world. And so it's not clear to me. So Shell is is serious about it. It's not clear to me what their advantages are, um, especially once you go into like downstream electricity sales. Well, their advantages, well, they don't necessarily have advantages here. Their advantages are in extremely complicated engineering projects, which is why their focus on CCS could be vital to to breaking open the industry or their focus on offshore wind is is vital. Um, but, you know, maybe they do offer some competitive advantage. And I'm just thinking out loud here. One is that they commonly have relationships with retail gasoline chains, right? They, um, they establish deals to provide branded gasoline. So they have a retail presence. In an increasingly electrified world, how much more important does that control improve their brand? And can they build services off of it? I don't think they're saying that that's going to be a huge piece of their business, but you can see them kind of thinking aloud with some of these acquisitions, getting deeper into the retail energy space, into the competitive energy space, buying up portfolios of solar and wind assets, um, buying up a competitive generator with demand response assets along with landfill gas, solar and wind, um, and then getting into electric vehicle charging. And you can see, start to see maybe how those pieces fit together downstream. So you start buying power assets to supply that charging infrastructure with renewables. So that's interesting to me. And I, and I don't think we figured out what that, that picture looks like. But again, you can kind of see these companies thinking aloud with these acquisitions. Yeah, I think that's well put, actually, that there you can see them thinking aloud with their investments um, and their acquisitions. And it's true. I mean, what so what big oil and gas companies have going for them is one, generally a global presence. So and relationships in in many countries. So they many of them are active in in the developing world, especially in sub-Saharan Africa or South America or, or India. And so they have relationships there that they should be able to leverage in theory. Um, they have long time horizons. You know, they can they can think long term in theory as well. And but none of that has has ever historically really proven to be a, a sustainable competitive advantage in in electricity. And the other thing that's happening is like a lot of these investments, and this is true of Shell, but it's also true of some of the others, a lot of the investments are in the US. 
Um, and so they're, they're going, you know, and that, that's true. Silicon Ranch is in the U S MP2 is in the U S. Um, in the case of some of the other companies, they're, they're also investing in the U S or in Western Europe. And, and, you know, so that's sort of going head on into a more established competitive marketplace for power products. Um, you know, they do have gas stations, as you mentioned, that provides some opportunity, you know, public EV charging stations, for example, but I'm not sure that all the rest of this stuff is going to be helped by having physical presences, um, in neighborhoods. So it's just an interesting dynamic. I mean, one thing that we haven't seen happen yet, and we talked about this in the context of Google, maybe six months ago or something like that, is that there, as far as I know, within the United States has still not been an acquisition of a utility company by anyone other than a utility company. Um, there's been a lot of utility M&A, but it's all happening uh, amongst utility holding companies. And I would not be super surprised to see one of the more you know, ambitious, progressive oil and gas companies acquiring a U.S. utility at some point in the next few years. I know a company with some distressed assets named First Energy that uh, has <laughs> some challenges keeping some power plants open, a, a few of which are important for keeping our low-carbon electricity portfolio going. So um, if Shell's looking to buy up something on the cheap, maybe check out some of First Energy's subsidiaries. Yeah, I mean they do know how to deal with big headaches, which First Energy would certainly be. So that's a that's maybe another competitive advantage that they've got. Let's go back to the original question, which is how to think about this plan because it's it's both extremely ambitious and also shows um you know just the limits of of our technological progress i mean oil and gas is going to continue to dominate well through the middle of the century and you know back in like the 2011 2012 time frame the international energy agency put out this analysis called the golden age of gas i don't know if you remember this scenario but it looked at um, basically the, 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 the surge of natural gas replacing most of the coal plants around the world um, and, and also a surge of liquefied natural gas. And it showed that um, under a fairly moderate to high natural gas expansion scenario, we could see six degrees Fahrenheit of warming by the end of the century. And, and you know, largely the expansion of oil and gas um, – that Shell outlines and that BP has outlined and others have outlined is, <laughs> you know, is consistent with what IEA outlined in that in that report. It shows that even when a company like this comes up with an ambitious scenario, it does still fall short of what we need. Um, that said, it is ambitious and it's a, it's a change in the dialogue. And you now have, you know, the, the chairman of the board and the CEO saying, the new energies business is important for us. Uh, we believe that in the Paris climate commitments, we want to see greater government action. We stand by carbon taxes as high as $100 a ton. We we can't ignore the importance of that. Yeah. I mean, if you put yourself, if you try to put yourself in Shell's shoes, forget history for a moment, right? There's, there's a long storied history and, and, you know, even more coming out recently on sort of how long companies like Shell and Exxon have known that climate change was real and a threat and what they did or didn't do about it. So forget all that for a moment. Just put yourself in Shell's shoes today and just, you know, take them at their word that they believe that, um, climate change is a real threat. They want 
ambitious action uh, and they want to be a part of that and they want to survive given that. So what do you do? You know, because you have um, an extraordinarily large business that is quite profitable, that is based off of the current paradigm. And your problem is, you, you know, if you try to go whole hog, if you try to say instead of one to two billion a year, they were investing 10 to 20 billion a year in their new energies business. Uh, there's probably a couple of challenges. One is that there's not, it's not clear there's that much out there for them at the moment. The second is that they are still trying to figure out a way to do this in a way that, that continues to earn a profit. In fact, one thing that was interesting in the report from Shell is that they actually specified what kind of returns they're looking for in their new energies business. And they said they're seeking equity returns of eight to 12%. And notably, that is a smaller number than what they get out of their upstream business. So they are, they're saying we're, we're willing to sacrifice returns to a certain degree um, in this emerging business, which is exactly what you have to do in, in an immature emerging market. Um, but they probably couldn't do that up to the scale of their full business uh, without, you know, taking some heat, uh, especially from investors. So, you know, how do you make this kind of long-term transition if you recognize the need and you sort of see the end game but need to get from here to there while succeeding the whole way through there are parallels to for example what david crane tried to do with nrg where he tried to transition nrg's business very very quickly into this new world and maybe would have succeeded but his investors um, and the board knocked him back and ultimately fired him so you know you're you're walking a weird tightrope when you're one of these companies. Well, we've been talking for years on our other podcast, The Energy Gang, about Apple acquiring Tesla. Or I guess it's not we. Uh, Jigger has been saying that he thinks at some point Apple will acquire Tesla. Maybe it'll be Shell acquiring Tesla. Who knows? That's super interesting, actually. I could see that being possible. I mean, there's there are some ways in which it's a better fit for, for Shell than it is for... Apple. But, you know, I don't think anybody's buying Tesla at this point. I still think, you know, a utility, buy a utility, like a, like a lines and wires distribution utility. See what you could do with that. They know how to, you know, they know how to run complex systems, not quite like a grid necessarily, but, you know, they've got pipelines, they've got distribution channels. I don't know. Maybe they could do something interesting. <laughs> well, this was fun. It was actually really helpful for me to walk through this because I, you read the report last week and then again over the weekend, and you always inevitably have dueling responses to a scenario like this, where you know you you have a lot of enviros who are like, this is clearly not enough, and you have folks who maybe understand the realities of the oil and gas business who can put this into context and say that it actually is pretty big um, when you look at what oil and gas companies have projected and what they've been doing with their own businesses. So helpful for me. Thanks, Shale. Yeah, likewise, useful for me as well. And if this was helpful for you, then leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at Interchange Show. Shale Khan is there. Stephen Lacey is there. So uh, just check us out. That's usually the best public place to reach us. And uh, send us your ideas, too, if you want us to hash anything out. Uh, we also occasionally address email. Email can be a little hard, but if you want to send an idea into podcasts at greentechmedia.com, we do check those. Unfortunately, I can't get back to everybody, but we got some great ideas for shows that we have followed up on, so thanks for that. All right, folks. Well, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.